KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Charlotte Reese. After years of political fighting and turmoil, on January 1st, 2021, the United Kingdom finally exited the European Union. So now that Brexit is official, what exactly has changed? What happens when a country goes through a massive divorce like this? And what does it mean for the UK, for the EU, and for the rest of the world? Dr. R. Daniel Kellerman is a professor of political science and law at Rutgers University, where he's also the chair in European Union politics. So the deal's done, but you know, before we break down what Brexit means and what's going to happen in the future, can you tell me what has been going on in the works for quite some time now? And for people out there, especially Americans, maybe who haven't kept up with all the plot twists, can you just break down how we got to here in 2021? All right, sure. Well, we, we have to go back a, a few years to get to the, the bottom of the story. And it, like a lot of things, it depends how far back you want to dig. I guess the, the first place to start is that in 2016, the UK had a referendum on whether their country should leave the European Union. And the Leave side won a narrow victory, 52% to 48% in that referendum. And you could, of course, go further back and ask, well, why were they having this debate about whether they should leave the European Union? And, and you know, that's a, a bigger question. But I, I, I suppose I'd just say that you know, the UK, they joined the what was then called the European community back in the 70s, but they were always a kind of, let's say, uncomfortable member, not totally committed or sure if they wanted to be part of this grouping. And to put it simply, in recent years, in the run up to that referendum, there was uh, more disagreement about this issue. And the, the prime minister at the time, David Cameron, thought that uh, really to try to put the issue to rest and to deal with tension within his conservative party about uh, the EU, he should put the issue to the voters and have this referendum. But uh, the referendum didn't go as he hoped it would, and they voted to leave. So that's back to 2016. And then since then, we've had you know, four year, four and a half years, essentially, of negotiations about the terms of the divorce, right? So the, the decision had been made about leaving, but the question was, well, how should the UK leave uh, what should the new relationship with the EU look like? And finally, that was settled just before Christmas. And why why did it take so long? What were some of like the main sticking points? Did people kind of wake up after the deal was done and kind of look for certain things that had had been negotiated for so long? Well, I, I think part of the reason it took so long is that when voters you know, voted narrowly to leave the EU in 2016, they sort of knew what they were voting against. In other words, they were dissatisfied with some aspects of EU membership, but they didn't really know or agree on what they were voting for. Because in other words, different uh, proponents of leaving the EU promised very different visions about what Brexit would look like or what the relationship between the UK and the EU would look like. And there was no agreement. Tony Blair, former British prime minister, he described it well one time when he said basically what that referendum looked like is someone, you know, taking a kind of vote to leave, move out of their house before deciding what 
house they would move into, right? And when it finally came to, you know, figuring out, well, what would this new relationship look like? It essentially, the problem was that the Brexit forces had kind of promised that the UK could have its cake and eat it, that they could have just as good of an economic relationship and just as much access to the European Union's market as they had had before without being a member. But what it turned out is that once you're no longer a member, you can't have all the benefits of membership. And so there was a, a big fight and a lengthy negotiations over you know, what kind of sacrifices the UK would have to make. You mentioned a couple people, but were there main characters kind of getting this passed along the way? I mean, you know, from the get-go. Well, yes, yeah, some, of course, in any complicated drama that drags on over years, there's many players in the, in the drama. I'd say some of the, the key players, well, first there was the prime minister at the time of the referendum, David Cameron, who was a bit of a gambler. And, and you know, really, he thought um, that um, he could put this issue to rest by holding the referendum, and he thought he could win the referendum. So it's a kind of odd thing for people to understand, but he called for the this vote on leaving the EU or whether the UK should leave the EU, but he wanted the UK to stay in the EU. That's what he campaigned for, but then he lost. So then the day after the referendum, he stepped down as prime minister. So in other words, he kind of took a gamble that he could settle this EU membership issue and he lost his gamble. Then there's Boris Johnson, who interestingly was an old you know, high school kind of frenemy of David Cameron's. And Boris Johnson, who was a conservative politician also, had been mayor of London. He actually came out in the months before the referendum he, he had sort of wasn't sure which side he would take at first, whether he would back remain in the EU or back the leave the EU side. And in the end, he decided to back leave. And that proved very important for the victory of leave because he was a popular figure. But he did not become prime minister right away after Cameron stepped down. You're right. He remained kind of in the background uh, while Theresa May uh, took over as prime minister after David Cameron. And so she was, let's say, the next player and a kind of tragic figure in the drama in a way because you know she negotiated with the EU was prime minister for a few years she got a deal with the EU that I think in a lot of ways is better than the deal they ended up with but her deals that she negotiated were rejected by parliament right repeatedly and then eventually that forced her to step down right as a uh, prime minister and then finally in came Boris Johnson who finally, in the end, you know, delivered this Brexit for the UK. And yeah, then there's, you know, there's other figures. I don't know how many of them you want to go into. There's uh, mm -hmm. uh, the, the leaders of the opposition. I guess another figure to mention is the kind of Brexit campaigner, Nigel Farage, who ran a party that used to be called the UK Independence Party that really pushed for Brexit for many years. Uh, then they changed their name or their identity a bit, became the Brexit Party. And so for him, you know, he views, treats this as a big victory of his campaign of over the past couple of decades to push for Britain to leave the EU. And that's finally happened. For people listening to this, you know, all of this can seem far away from us in the States. But will we see noticeable changes from Brexit at all now that the deal's done is, you know, is our relationship with either the UK or the EU different in any substantial way? Well, it remains to be seen how it will unfold, but I think our relations will change. I mean, 
I think a thing, a couple of points to make are that the EU is actually a much bigger economic partner for the US than the UK is by itself. Because keep in mind, the population of the EU collectively with those 27 member states dwarfs the population of the UK on its own, right? And so our trade and commercial investment relationships with the EU are much bigger. So even if the UK was traditionally sort of our you know, closest ally in many ways, and it remains a, a crucial ally. From an economic point of view, the EU is just much more important and much more influential. Secondly, I think another thing that will change is that part of the kind of special relationship of the US and UK, and part of the attraction of having those close ties was that the UK very often acted as our kind of access point or our ally uh, within the EU in the sense that, first of all, a lot of uh, American business, when it would be investing in the UK, it was doing that partly to have a bridgehead into Europe, right, in, into this big uh, market that is the European Union. And likewise, the UK shares a lot of kind of common approaches in terms of uh, economic policy. So they would kind of advocate for a lot of American style interests within the EU. Well, now that they've left the EU, they're just less important and less valuable as a kind of partner. You know, we have to deal with the EU directly, deal with Germany, deal with France, you know, member states of the EU. And the UK, I think, will find itself kind of marginalized. You mentioned, you know, some different visions for things moving forward. And I think trade is it plays a massive role here. What are kind of the trade options moving forward and are they leaving anything behind? Well, they're definitely leaving something behind. They're leaving behind the biggest market in the world, the, the European Union's market, right? And they, they left that behind, you know, with Brexit. And that, this is, again, what I was saying at the beginning, that a lot of the campaigners for Brexit promised initially, oh, leaving the EU will not mean leaving the EU's single market. We'll stay in. But in the end, they did leave the single market. Now, as part of the deal they negotiated, they do retain a tariff-free trade with the EU, but that's not the same as being a member. There's a whole new series of kind of regulatory and paperwork kind of impediments to trade, and those are just starting to be felt, and the full repercussions will become you know, more obvious in the weeks and months to come. But the UK, having left behind the EU, they're trying to negotiate new trade deals with other partners around the world, and they're doing that, some of that already. But we should keep in mind that you know, the realities of trade are that you, you always trade more with the countries that are closest to you geographically. That's why like the U.S. does so much trade with Canada, Mexico, that sort of thing. And, you know, the U.K., these champions of Brexit, they've they've talked about this idea of a global Britain. They say, oh, we don't need the EU because we can trade with China. We can trade with India. You know, we can trade with the whole world. And of course they can. But the reality is that the volume of trade and investment between the UK and European countries absolutely dwarfs that with you know these other emerging economies in Asia and elsewhere. So you know, that's a real problem for the UK going forward is that it's created problems for trade with its biggest partner. And just you know to elaborate a bit, for instance, while they maintain tariff-free access or trade in goods, that doesn't apply to services and 80% of the British economy is services, things like financial services, right? So London was the kind of New York of like, sort of what New York is to the US, the financial hub with Wall Street. Well, London was the financial hub for Europe. But now 
by leaving the EU and its single market, they've cut off London from that single market. And I think over time, we'll see the significance of London within Europe, you know, diminish significantly as a, a place for finance. What about people who cross the border for work or things like that, vacation purposes? How is that going to change? Well, that is also going to change dramatically. I mean, it won't affect things like people moving around for holidays and things so much, but it will definitely have great effects on people who used to cross borders for work. Why? Because part of the EU's single market, it's not that it was just a free trade zone for goods. It was also, as I said, free, uh, free movement, free trade zone for services, but also for free movement of labor. So part of being a member state of the EU is that your citizens, you have the right to study and work in the other member countries, right? Well, that's gone now for the UK. And you really had huge amounts of movement of people for the purposes of work. And that's going to affect both British people who had worked on the continent, but also, you know, the British economy relied a lot on migrant workers from the EU for things like staffing their hospitals, picking their fruit and vegetables in the field, agriculture, etc. And so they're going to have a real shock to their labor market because of that. And something else worth adding that really disappointed a lot of people is that beyond working, you know, also studying is something where there was free movement. And, and the EU has this scheme called Erasmus, which is a, a, a kind of study abroad scheme that really a lot of European university students, nearly 10% or so, participate in, where you could go study in another country for a semester, right? And the UK, even though they were offered the option of staying in that, they chose to leave the Erasmus scheme. So now, you know, university students from the UK can't just go study in Spain or France for a semester and vice versa. Wow, that's really different. And, you know, mentioning the other parts of the UK, I think, is important in this as well. Are there different fears or maybe not fears, but are there different concerns or issues that, you know, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland are paying attention to more than Britain is? This is, yes, this is one of the most important issues of Brexit and in a way one of the most ironic. In fact, we can start with, let's start with Northern Ireland. One of the big dilemmas, or in fact, I've called it a trilemma because there's three parts to it with Brexit was that the Brexiteers, those backing Brexit, they kind of made some incompatible promises, right? Uh, and this has to do with Northern Ireland. So you know, they said, we're going to leave the single market of the EU, but we are not going to uh, reintroduce a border between Ireland and Northern Ireland. So, you know, the Republic of Ireland, the countries on the southern part of the island, and then Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK, that's on the northern part. And of course, 22 years ago, the Good Friday Agreement, they got rid of the border controls and kind of allowed free movement on Ireland. So the Brexiteers said, well, even though we're leaving the, the market of the EU, we're not going to reintroduce a border. Don't worry about that. And then they also said, oh, but we're also not going to introduce a border between Britain, you know, the island of Britain and Northern Ireland, right? Because, you know, that's two parts of our own country. But guess what? you can't promise all three things or you can't keep all three promises because if you're going to leave the market, then you know, goods have to be checked for customs and things like that somewhere, right? 
So where are you going to do it? That was a huge dilemma that they fought over and they really couldn't face up to it for years. And the ultimate outcome is that the UK agreed to impose a border within its own country. So now there's a border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK, the part on Britain, the island Britain, where now goods have to be uh, checked, not all goods, but you know some kind of goods and livestock and traders have to show customs kind of forms, things like that, so that they could avoid creating a border on the island of Ireland. Now, I know that's a kind of long story to tell, but it's very important because it's, it's really shocking. And the Brexiteers lied about this, right? They said, oh, they, they, we won't have to do this, but they did. And this is important for your bigger question, because really what it gets at is, this is the big irony. Brexit was promising, you know, sovereignty and, you know, for the UK, breaking away from this union uh, of Europe. But really what it might do in the end is break up the UK itself. Why? Well, first of all, by dividing, creating this border between Britain and Northern Ireland, that's probably over the long term just going to encourage the reunification of Ireland because their economy is going to become more cut off from Britain and more integrated on the island. So I think it enhances the chance of Northern Ireland reuniting with Ireland. Secondly, Scotland is furious about all this. The Scottish voted uh, to remain in the EU and they were forced out against their will. And Nicola Sturgeon right, the leader in Scotland, is demanding that Scotland be able to hold another referendum on leaving the UK. And you know, she wants to rejoin the EU and leave the UK. So in the end, Brexit, you know, over the next two decades or so, Brexit could easily lead to the breakup of the UK. On the EU side of things, right, does a country like the UK leaving the bloc how does what does that kind of say to other countries or the future of the countries? Anything do you think that could lead to other things in the makeup of the EU? Yeah, that that's a very fascinating question, and and I'll be honest, it's one of the things that surprised me the most about how Brexit has played out over the past few years. Myself and many others you know, who study the EU, we really worried that the vote for uh, Brexit could be very damaging for the EU, really damage the prestige of the EU and, you know, potentially also encourage other kind of populist anti-EU forces to call for their own referendums on whether their countries should leave the EU. But in fact, kind of the opposite has happened. Well, it's true that, you know, it's kind of tragic and sad for the EU and diminishes its global influence, the fact that a big country like the UK has left. So certainly it's not a good thing. But the, the kind of uh, surprising consequence has been that because the Brexit process has been such a mess and really been perceived as very damaging for the UK, that that has really changed politics in the EU, leading to an increase in support of citizens for the EU. Sort of uh, seeing what happened in the UK has led people to appreciate the EU more. And in fact, the kind of what we call Eurosceptic or anti-EU forces, political forces that's mostly like right-wing populists in Europe, they've kind of changed their tune in reaction to Brexit, where, you know, they're still very critical of the EU, but now none of them advocate leaving anymore. So there used to be other parties that advocated leaving the EU. Now they all just say, well, we should stay in the EU, but kind of change it, try to make it, you know, uh, pursue our more right-wing policies or that sort of thing, but we shouldn't leave because basically they realize that no one uh, wants to follow the British model. 
you mentioned, right, you know, there's still a lot. It's very messy. Are there things that need to be decided sooner rather than later? Some things that you're kind of keeping an eye on or I mean, I know this is going to be years to come, but... Yeah, so there are, of course, many things, you know, they, they reached that agreement really at the last minute. You know, they had an end of 2020 sort of deadline. They reached the deal uh, on Christmas Eve and rushed through the votes with almost no scrutiny. So that means that a lot of things were left sort of to be fleshed out in the coming months. A couple of the things that I think will be most important, I had mentioned before, we were talking a little bit about financial services, which is a key industry in the UK, a key part of their economy. And London was, has been traditionally such an important financial center for the EU. Well, for now, they kind of left in place the existing system. They're in a kind of transition phase because they wanted to avoid too big of a, a sort of shock. But in the coming months, the EU is going to have to decide if they allow financial institutions from the UK to continue operating in the EU or uh, kind of allow uh, an equivalence of their regulations and kind of accept them, or if they cut more or less kind of cut them off or cut off their access to the EU market. So that'll be one big decision. And then also another sort of big thing on the horizon is how transfers of data will be dealt with. Basically, the EU has very strict rules about kind of personal data and data privacy. And since, you know, everything to do with e-commerce or any kind of companies that handle your personal data from your electronic communications, things like that, the EU's got to decide how it wants to handle you know, relations with the UK and British companies on, on issues to do with data. And once they decide that, that could also have, you know, further cause further disruptions in, in commerce. You mentioned some things that haven't gone to plan so far. So do you think Brexit has shaped out to be what people voted for or what they think is going to happen? Well, no, I mean, I'd say no in the sense that, I mean, if you look at the polling on Brexit just in the, you know, in the past few months, so in the the run up to the actual final departure. Well, actually, I mean, the UK actually left in early 2020, but they were in a transition phase. But in any case, the point is there was buyer's remorse because while a narrow majority voted to leave the EU in 2016, by 2020, there was no longer a majority for leaving. In fact, you know, the, the number of people who, who say, said, you know, they wish the UK was remaining in exceeded those, you know, who were happy about them leaving. So, I think there was a regret, but you know, I think the the decision had been taken and you know, no politicians were really going to or not there wasn't going to be a move to undo it. So, I think now though it's happened and both political leadership and I think most of the citizenry is just looking forward hoping that uh, they can make the best of this new situation. And I I think the other thing that's really crucial right now is that Brexit has kind of been pushed to like page two of the news, because obviously all the focus is on the pandemic, uh, which is really out of control in the UK. And I think that also makes it harder for people to have a clear picture of, well, how much economic disruption is really caused by Brexit or how much disruption to freedom of movement is caused by Brexit. You can't really tell now because the country's on lockdown and travel is restricted because of COVID anyway, right? So that's Mm -hmm. kind of muddying the waters of the whole issue for now. Yeah, no, that's a that's a very good point. What a weird timing for everything. Very 
historic time on many different levels. Yeah, and I mean, ironically, in a way, while the pandemic has been enormously damaging uh, for Britain, both for human health and for the economy, in one sense, at least, it, it may have kind of helped the Brexiters because uh, it has muddied the waters about the exact effects of Brexit, right? And so they can claim that any disruptions and problems going on now have more to do with the pandemic than with Brexit. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Charlotte Reese, and we'll have another episode out soon. <laughs>